thank you very much. And for me, it's emphasis on the chicken. <laughs> I'll tell you what, what are you going to do? Civilians. Gee whiz. Yeah. All right. Let us bless God. May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that a mishap not come about through us. And may we not stumble in a matter of Torah and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say regarding something which is Tameh that it is to whore, and not regarding something which is to whore that it is Tameh. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of Torah, and we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, today we're in chapter 6. Before we really get into chapter 6, I'm going to briefly go back to chapter 5 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, because we're going to talk about the verse that I dodged last time, um, which is the, uh, the righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. When I get some ideas on what I think that that means, um, doesn't mean that it is what it means, but to, to start off, I want to highlight the fact that Yeshua does an odd, a little bit of an odd thing here by specifically calling out scribes and Pharisees, which is interesting because... Um, there are times where Yeshua does talk specifically about just Pharisees, and there are times when he lumps Pharisees in with other groups, like Sadducees and Herodians, which would seem like it's an interesting little addition process, except for the fact that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians are wildly different, and it's like, that's an odd, it's, it'd be like, well, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, their thing, and you're like, what do they have in common? Um, so, first was the Zion, and their um, fourth version, I think it's fourth edition of their, or fourth volume of their Torah club in talking about the apostolic writings right. they actually have a theory that instead of the um, group lumping being an addition process, it's actually more of like a Venn diagram, so I'm going to just kind of draw that out, so you've got your, you got your, your, your Pharisees, you've got your Sadducees but you, instead of it just you, being you're going to put a P in there and an S? Or? Right, well hang on Instead of just being two groups like that, a more like a more a better scenario would be to look at it like this, where you've got them and they overlap. Sure. So you got your Pharisees, you got your Sadducees, and what Yeshua is specifically getting at is what they share, mm. which is okay. not necessarily to say that all Pharisees and all Sadducees think the same. Pharisees and Sadducees, or yeah, Pharisees and Sadducees. But this is also okay. I'm going to adopt this theory for my theory on scribes and Pharisees, which the S and the P also really work really well for that. So my thought is, instead of it being like scribes plus Pharisees equals a bunch of people, personally, when I look at this passage, I have some trouble, unless it's a creative reading of it, um, a different reading of it than what I'm thinking, trouble believing that Yeshua would call out all of the scribes and Pharisees in a negative light. I mean, if you know the Pharisees, they have a very good reputation for being religious in a good way. Um, I read and, an and he's got a positive relationship with, with everyone that we read about. Right, and in fact, he can eat with them, which is a big deal, because right. they only eat with certain people. Right. Um, and then I was reading an article on JewishEncyclopedia.com that was talking about scribes. Are like, they're like the, the hardcore interpreters of the Torah. Like These guys were strict. So it doesn't really make sense to me for him to say, unless your righteousness exceeds all of, those, all of the scribes and all of the Pharisees, you're not even getting into the kingdom of heaven. That just seems to be like, A, a little unfair, and B, what is he even trying to get at? So by lumping them together, scribes and Pharisees, my theory, this is just a theory, I don't have a backing for it per se, is that maybe he's focusing on something that they share in common. There's something about, like, when you talk about 
scribes and Pharisees, you're thinking about something specific, a trait that the two groups share, mm. or there's a mindset that they have, or maybe there's like a reputation, good or bad, that's associated with them as a unit, not that, as two separate groups. That makes perfect sense. Is there something like that? Well, I don't have a specific thing to call out to that from historical backing, but I think it's interesting that Yeshua uses scribes and Pharisees in chapter 5 of Matthew. He does the same thing in Matthew 23. People oftentimes think that Matthew 23 is just simply a diatribe against Pharisees, and that's not true. There is a pa parallel passage in Luke where he singles out the Pharisees, but in Matthew 23, almost every single reference is both of them, scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, which is interesting because he doesn't call it the Sadducees or the Herodians at all, um, and he focuses on these two. So again, it's a theory. I can't say I have like a lot of proof behind it. But the reason why I point that out is because if you go into Matthew 23, remember Matthew 5, Yeshua has this very harsh verse where he basically says, unless it's your righteousness exceeds these guys, you will not get into, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not five, even the least of. That's 520. Yeah, chapter 5, verse 20. <clears throat> but then in Matthew 23, 14, or, sorry, Matthew 23, 13, um, he says something very similar. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Same language. And throughout chapter 23 of Matthew, one of his main things he's hitting on over and over and over again is hypocrisy. Basically, um, doing, the, the, doing things that don't really matter, ignoring things that do. Or, as he talks about with like the, you know, the cup is dirty on the, out, on the inside, but it's clean on the outside. Basically, making things as a pretense. You, you, you do all this stuff for show, you act religious in like things like having your seat seat long and your your to fill in wide, but you don't really get the point, the focus of these things. It's for show. It's showing off. Mm. That's the purpose. Is to look good. And I think the reason why I think that's the case is because I think that it ties into Matthew six, but also into the Perkei vote. And we'll get to that in a second. Did you have a, a comment there, Greg? Yeah. Well, yeah. I was going to say that seems to be for me like when you describe some kind of similarity between the two. I think of the fact that both of them have a lot of like pride built into their group. Like their group is so distinct from everybody that it's easy to become very arrogant and think that like, well, I'm a Pharisee, so like obviously I'm much better than you, or I'm a scribe, obviously I'm much better than you. And that, of course, being very dangerous because it's easy to blind you from keeping the mitzvot for the right reasons. And so I think that kind of ties in well with the hypocrisy. But yeah, that's what, I mean, just from the sound of the things that Yeshua has a problem with them, that's typically the, the thing. Well, which is why I was trying to say that I see it as maybe like he's calling out a segment of them yeah. rather than necessarily lumping in the whole group. Because again, I don't think that's particularly fair. That would be like saying... All Christians are hypocrites. Well, maybe a lot of them are. Maybe all the ones you've met are, but that's really not fair to say about all of them. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, perhaps a way to look at this would be, uh, you, you quoted uh, Matthew 23, 13. Mm -hmm. I, I'm in accordance, and for the first time I've, I found a mistake. I go from 13 right to 15. There is no 23, 14. Do you have... There is a 14 because it's one of those ones where it's like we're not sure if it's Oh, there's weird ones. This. Okay, got it. All right. What is it then? That one is, you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, okay. you will receive greater condemnation. So, 23.13 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 15 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The, the 13 one is the one, you know, right. um, you Not shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and now they're entering themselves or allow others to enter to go in. 15 says, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. 
And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Right. Uh, perhaps he's talking about not scribes and Pharisees, but the hypocrites who are scribes. in the scribes and the Pharisees. Again. That textually would make sense. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and comes back to being a Pharisee is not a bad thing. Being a Pharisee and looking down on the guy who's beating his chest and saying, "Man, am I glad I, he didn't make me like him." Gee, whiz! I mean, I mean, I got it together. That attitude is bad. Right. That that hypocritical attitude. And that kind of attitude could create, could have created at that time a stereotype surrounding Pharisees, to where Generally. Pharisee became synonymous with like, oh, those people that are like way too good for and us, they won't that eat we would with never us. be able to be a part of. And they won't eat with us. But again, I think I, I, that's one reason why I kept going back to the grouping, because I do think the grouping is important, because Yeshua does use Pharisees alone on occasion. And in this case, he specifically chooses not to, which is interesting, because the scribes, from what I can tell, they don't show up that much. They show up on occasion, but they're not like... The Pharisees is a very identifiable group that follows Yeshua around all the time. The scribes pop in and out of the story here and there, but it's, I think it's interesting to me that he specifically, in most of his critiques... I mean, you look at the word Pharisee in your English Bible, do a search for it, you will only find Yeshua use it alone maybe half a dozen times. He'll enjoin it with scribes over and over and over yeah. again, which makes me feel like there's maybe like a group setting there. Yes, sir. Well, first of all, the scribes, when the scribes are treated negatively, you watch, it's people that are questioning him specific, not when he's addressing scribes, but when it says, and some of the scribes were there. It's almost... It is almost always negative. Mm -hmm. It's not that he's addressing them negatively, but their questions appear to be negative. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, that might go along with what you're talking about, where it's the overlap. Because yeah. the scribes by themselves are are not necessarily the good guys. Okay. Um, but what about what about what I brought up last week in the in the sense that, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that's actually not, I mean, the classic way for Christian theology to treat that is, okay, look, the righteousness that comes through its vote is, is insufficient to arrive at the kingdom of heaven, but rather it has to be a, an imputed righteousness, that righteousness doesn't fit cannot the attain. context at all. It, it doesn't, because he's, he's encouraging them. He's just simply, he's already gone through this whole thing about humility, essentially humility, peace, um, uh, being persecuted, all right. these meek well, and they talk about keeping the commandments. The verse immediately before that one is, "Whoever annuls the least of exactly. these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be least in the kingdom." So my theory so. was, and I, and I, again, it's just a theory as well. My theory was that the term righteousness is not mitzvot. Mm -hmm. See, that's classic Christianity is to say, well, that's talking about the commandments. Like maybe it's not talking about commandments. Well, if it's not talking about the commandments, what is it talking about? And if you have, if you have a Jewish reading of that verse, tzedakah is not the commandments. Right, that's another interpretation of the word for righteousness. Right, so in that regard, if it's tzedakah, if, that, if he said it in Hebrew, it was tzedakah. So it'd be righteousness, uh, charity then. So if, you're, so if, you're, if your charity does not exceed this, so Gospel. that would fit back to the Third previous child. verses Second in the sense it's bringing, the right. it's bringing context. It's, look, child. you need oh. to be you were talking yeah. about the poor, no. being no. humble, right. being no. meek. You need to have charity. You, you need to be a generous. All of that, to me, it's a summation. I don't know, but it seems like it's more of a summation 
about what he just said. And the righteousness he just described is not imputed righteousness. Right, I agree. Absolutely. It's, so the righteousness he just described, especially in what we call the Beatitudes, is not an imputed thing. It's you've got to do, you've got to be this kind of person evidenced by what you do, right? And so in my view, when he gets to this point talking about the Pharisees saying, look what they do. This goes back to Matthew 23. Don't do what they say. Do what they do. Look what they do. Well, no, the opposite. They don't get. do what they do. Do what the they say. Do what they say. No, yeah. they're Excuse saying, yeah, yeah. They're saying right. the and teaching stuff. the right things. The problem is that's what I meant. they're yeah. not practicing but, which is what they do. Do, do what they say to do is what I should have said. Yeah. Right. Do what they say to do. And what is it that they say to do? They were, they were big on giving alms. Right. Huge. I mean, it's such right. a big part of it, and actually, all the all the way through the Talmud, that's the, mm. you know, the definition is how not how observant you are. Everybody's observant. Mm. So mm. it's not how observant you are. It's how you how you how your observance uh, um, affects the community around you, and the community around you, as we've seen in the first, you know, twelve verses, is 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 talking about meekness, poorness, strife that needs to be dealt with with peace. All of these things are. Could be encapsulated in the same motivation that one should have when he gives charity. Well, and charity is going to show up a lot in chapter mm-hmm. six. In fact, at one point, we'll talk about later the idea of your eye being bad. Mm-hmm. But he almost seems to say, basically, if you're not generous, then you're really hopeless. You got a real you're problem. Really well, that would fit with it, the you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. Right. And in this version uh, from Vine of David, that I, I think is a great. Hebrew translation, it's tzedakah. tzedakah. No yeah. question about it. And, it's, and, I'm, and I'm not talking about specifically the giving of alms in and of itself because that would make it sound like you're buying your way into the kingdom. No, and I don't think that's what's being It's being, being charitable that's right. towards your... So, towards right. your, so if, you, if you would consider how a Pharisee who is charitable or gives charity, the, in the, the negative Pharisee, the stereotypical one that we're talking about here, the hypocrite, he gives it as a show. It's a show, uh, and in this sense, it's not given as a, he's saying unless your unless your generosity exceeds that of the show, right? Well, that's exactly what he's been talking in my mind. That's what he's right. been talking about all the way through right. the verse. The do chapter. what he so says to do because he says to give charity. That's right. Just don't do it the way he does it because he's doing it to get his name on the building, exactly. which is not the proper motivation. Exactly. And, that, and that issue, is what I, was, I was basically trying to get at, the whole point was to say that I think that Yeshua's primary concern is the showing off, is the, is the, is the display. Right. Because interestingly enough, Hillel actually comments with a similar intensity in the Berkei Avot. In chapter 4, uh, segment 7, they say, so too Hillel used to say, he who exploits the crown of Torah for personal benefit shall fade away. From this you derive that whoever seeks personal benefit from the words of Torah removes his life from the world. In other words, it's like big no-no. Like you can do, you can, you can, you can study to teach, you can study to do, better to study to do both, you know. But if you study and you use Torah in order to get yourself advanced, either monetarily or for personal glory or honor, then it's actually, not only is it neutral, like, you, you know, your gain is offset by your loss, quote-unquote, quote but in fact, it's a negative. It's a huge negative. In fact, the, this one, this one, to, to explains what happens to all the, all, you know, all the televangelists that over right. time. Well, the language he says removes his life from the world is the same language they use for people who are like, like excessively sexually immoral. Like it's like a really intense type of language to throw out there for somebody who's exploiting Torah. 
So the point that I'm getting at is I think that that's really Yeshua's angle, regardless of how he's characterizing the groups or maybe what specific thing he's, he's critiquing them on. I think the general thing, and the general thing you see throughout chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, is this showiness, is this hypocrisy, is this, I'm going to put it on display, but the inside doesn't change. I won't murder, but I'll hate my brother in my heart. I won't commit adultery, but I'll stare at the woman. You know, whatever it might be. Right. And it's this, this, this uh, disconnect between the surface and the inside that really bothers Yeshua. Chapter 6 of Matthew, that's most of what he's pounding for the whole first half of the chapter. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about charity, like you're saying. And he's trying specifically to say, if you do it to show off, you already get your reward. That's exactly what Hillel is saying. Hillel is saying... You get nothing. If you think about it, in Judaism, they teach the idea that you get your reward in this world or the world to come. And some mitzvot, you get reward in both. But the idea is that the wicked get the reward in this world because they, that way they will not get it in the world to come because God's just. So if a wicked person does a good deed, however you know, puny handful that he or she does, they get a reward for that. But it's specifically here. So when Yeshua says in Matthew 6 that I tell you that they have their reward... That's a huge red flag. That should be having you really upset and concerned because you don't want your reward here. Right. You want your reward there. So when Yeshua, in fact, interestingly enough, one of the only mitzvot, supposed, according to tradition, that has a reward in both is charity. So it's ironic that Yeshua is saying even the one that normally gets you one in both, if you do it just to show off, that's all Actually, you get. No, but that would, that would fall back into that because the same idea is that's not going to get you into the world to come. Right, because your motivation is all wrong. Your, your, your tzedakah must exceed. And it's not just Pharisees. It's scribes and Pharisees there that overlap. Mm-hmm. And and those the, of those two groups, and this, this you could exclude the Sadducees, those two groups, that's their definition. They were the ones going around giving alms. Right. Which and is why they had favor with the common people. Exactly right. And, and so I guess I feel like Yeshua is really trying to hit at, especially, the, I mean, let's just take a quick look at the beginning of chapter 6 of Matthew. Um, he says, starts in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness, there's that word again, before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you get to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites, there's that term again, do in the synagogues and in the streets, so they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Then he proceeds to go on with the things. Chapter two just defined, in my in my mind, chapter two just defined what practicing your righteousness was. Yeah. You give to the poor. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think it's a viable op, uh, discussion here. And the idea is again just saying like how you do it. Mm-hmm. It's like it's great that you're giving money, but if you're doing it to show off, then you're losing it. Here's a here's a question. Uh, just kind of as we're talking through this, it's common practice in the Jewish community. Right, for members in the community, members of the congregation, they'll give to various causes and programs and initiatives and whatever. And you know, you can walk into Temple Israel, you can walk in, you know, front of your door. Yeah, you can walk into the JCC, whatever, and there there'll be whole walls of names, you know, honoring people who gave. You you can open up that. Mm-hmm. That edition of uh, the the Talmud, right? Yeah, a bunch say, of pages in the front. Who were the donors that contributed to the translation? You right. know, of mm-hmm. you know, and and Judaism makes a big deal about recognizing, you know, those people who have given patronage. Right? Uh, 
I'm just curious to get input here. How does that line up with kind of this teaching? Well, it's I always think, bothered me a little bit. It bothers me a tiny bit too. I mean, I, I struggle with this. I one. understand it because I think we need to re recognize those who are generous. Right, because the idea behind that, what I understand, because we had a similar question. We had given charity to a group, and it was the first time we'd given them charity. So they actually sent us a little plaque, you know, thank you, congratulations, we really appreciate you doing this. And it was like, <laughs> they sent it like a frame and everything, like it was a big deal. And we're, so we, Julianne and I kind of wrestled with, like, should we put this up? Like, we're not trying to show off, but it's like, obviously their thought is, we, not to recognize us per se, but it's more about like, we want to show, like, it's a good thing. It's cool to give charity. Yeah. And so, from what I understand, that's kind of the Judaism's approach to it, where it's like, it's not trying to show off. And it's interesting, I think, in this particular, as you mentioned, like, the plaques on the wall, and I don't know what the situation is for all of those, but I would guess a lot of times the organization is the one who's recognizing them as opposed to them doing it to get recognition, which I think what we're dealing with here. Because when we're going to talk about fasting later in this chapter, one of the things that I was reading in that, there's a whole long discussion in the Talmud and in related writings about what you can do as far as like um, uh, showing off your fast. If you're doing a personal fast that, that nobody else is joining you in, are you, are you, are you like supposed to lie if they ask you if you're fasting? It's like how, how secret should this be? And basically what it kind of boiled down to is it's like, well, you're allowed to let people know so that they can they can hopefully be inspired to fast. It's not a bad thing. Like this is a, you know, be encouraged to do righteousness, but you shouldn't go tooting your own horn. You shouldn't go out saying, yeah, too, the tough fast today. Boy, I tell you what, but I feel unrighteous now. You know, it's, and so I think that's kind of the same thing here where it's like, if, if there's recognition for it coming from the group, I don't think that's necessarily bad. But if it's recognition from the person, if they're pushing themselves out there, well, or if the person gives, knowing the group will recognize them, right? Yeah, we have no idea. The only thing you can do there is that's the old, each person's motivation. Yeah, right. Which which right. is not can't, hard. No, right. not our. God reads the heart. We don't need to worry about that. Exactly. Right. Yeah, right. I've, I've always kind of thought of like like the, the additions and stuff like that as whenever there's an organization involved like art school or someone as kind of like how you do an investment it's you know? their market a lot of times yeah even kickstarter right so usually they'll say like if you donate a certain amount we're going to add like your name to a page on our website when it's launched when we launch our business or something like that and yeah, i always so feel I like get, so i can get uh, scammed by somebody else. Right. Not the Kickstarter's a scam, but they're, it's, uh, it's all set by email. So I was like, much. what? Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I guess when it's when it, and there's an organization involved, I always feel like it's sort of like an, an investment, you know, where they're recognizing the sure. investors. I, and I mean, I, I don't have an issue with it, but I'm just curious to get... Yeah. I think the, the most weird ones that I've seen is like when you might subscribe to like a rabbi's email or something like that, and then like in big red letters it's like this is sponsored by you know the, the email or the teaching or something like right. that and I always get a little uncomfortable with that because um, then it's like well you don't really need to know that it's sponsored but, by this but, person I've never met I think, before I, actually the, I think the desire that you have to not really want to want to be known I think is really yeah. good right so, if, if, if it bothers you that that's up there I think is is a bellwether that I think it's good your heart's in a yeah. good place Interestingly enough, when we talk about charity, Yeshua's argument, he has the famous let's not your right hand know what your left hand is doing deal. Um, this is totally Jewish. And Mishneh Torah from Rambam, he outlines eight different levels of charity. Like, this is the best charity, next best. The number one, as Johnny has taught on this before, is of course giving someone employment or giving them like a loan to get them started in a business or whatever so that basically they don't need charity anymore. 
each man to fish, that kind of deal. The next best op option, though, is actually what we're talking about, which is an anonymous fund. You give money to somebody, they don't, they're not necessarily knowing where the money's coming from, or in some cases they are, but like in the temple cases, you just drop the coin in the box. Now we don't know whose coin that is. Then they take those coins and they give them out to the poor. So the, the giver and the recipient never know each other. They have no idea who the other person is. That's ideal as far as like the one-to-one -one actual charity, not, not helping someone out. the Jewish community has. Pushka box. Well, right, they have a local fund. Right. In fact, in fact, in Israel, you go into a, a, a little um, convenience store, they got the little plastic box there by the cash register you can drop your change off into. And it's not that March of Dimes either. Right. <laughs> um, but the next option is, is to, if you know the recipient but not the giver, and they said that the greatest sages, this is a, this is a comment from Mishnah Torah, they said the greatest sages would actually put coins in their, in their, like, the doors of the poor. So they would go around at night, you know, drop coins off and leave. The poor get up the next morning and there's coins. So they, again, the giver knows he's giving, but the recipient has no idea who gave it to him. Um, so the idea is, in fact, there's another one that was the flip, like the next level, I think, was the other way around, where the recipient knows, but the giver doesn't. And they said that they would tie coins into like the back of their, like their coat or something, as they would walk and like unravel and just spill coins in the street, and the poor would come and grab them. You know, the idea being, again, is, is that anonymity. Anonymity is a, is a virtue in Jewish ideas of, of giving. Which is exactly what Yeshua is getting at. He's saying, if you're doing it, showing off, hello, here I am, here's some money, here's a big ribbon-cutting ceremony, we're donating all this money for this, then that's a problem. Whereas if it's done very quietly, secretly, the only person who sees is God. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who rewards you. He does the same thing with fasting um, in the next section in Matthew 6. And this one, boy, I t um, well, actually, I'm sorry, the next one is prayer. My apologies. So the next one is prayer. And when he talks about this one, um, he says that the uh, don't do mindless repetition, or I'm not sure which options you have, meaningless repetition. Meaningless repetition. Um, and again, this really, I tell you what, I'm sure there are a bunch of Christians out there that immediately think, those Siddur prayers. I mean, how many times do we or say... Any, any can't pray, what yeah, different prayers? Yeah, liturgical prayers. It needs to all be from the Spirit, flowing, whatever else. It's like, if you've ever read the Psalms, how about... We say for his kindness endures forever like 19 times in that song. It's not the issue of repetition. It's the issue of meaningless repetition. I will borrow now from a religious prayer because there are some variations of Christianity that have you do an X number of Hail Marys for certain sins. I can't really imagine that there's any meaning once you get past number 45 or something like that. It is just simply a number that you have to hit to get forgiveness of something. Like, I don't know, I'm not critiquing Catholicism in general, I don't know what the normal model is, and there may have a reason for that, but the point that I'm saying is, that's, I think, more the critique. In fact, interestingly enough, again, Judaism is in agreement with Yeshua. Judaism has a huge deal about concentration, intention, during your prayers. If you're just rushing through your prayers to get through them, that's a big negative. And, and they also further state that, like, if you focus and, and pray with intensity and, and concentration throughout the prayers, then those are like the super righteous people. They're the ones who are doing like they're doing it the right way. That's the goal. And so again, I think I think Yeshua's point is basically saying, don't do it for show. Don't do it to check the check on the list of things to do that day. It, this is prayer with God, and if you don't treat it that way, then you don't get the reward for it. No, yeah. you get the reward. Your reward is <laughs> right here. You, yeah, it's the recognition it. you're getting. Right. Yeah, I I think that the benefit of 
the sitter versus this is like I, I like two the two examples in my own life is like I, I have worked in situations where there would be a lot of like community prayer. And I tell you what, like they for for not having them memorized, they sure do sound a lot alike. Like every <laughs> single prayer. And but it's all stuff off the top of your head. And I always think like the sitter is so beautiful because even if you're not concentrating, the words that you're saying have meaning behind them. Because they're God's because they're God's words and or they're words of like extremely righteous guys, like from back in the day. So it's like you you can't go wrong when you're like saying <laughs> you're these right, things. Though. I mean, even even people who would sort of frown on liturgical prayer, even non liturgical prayer, people tend to have patterns. Oh, very much so. The formula is regardless. Father, it's, father, it's, father. It's formulaic and it's yeah. and there's patterns. I have nothing. First of all, I I, I pray both ways. And sure. I right. hope everybody right. prays. And I think Judaism I, I think in, in most in most instances, that's really what he's talking about. Is Pray in secret because there's there's clearly prayers that should were and should be done publicly, right? Um, and we talk about the Psalms, that, like the Psalms, Psalms. Right? Um, so he's not saying all prayer needs to be done in private. That's not what he said. But he says when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done uh, in secret will reward you. To me, that is more the the notion of the of the. Uh, not necessarily non-liturgical, but essentially the private mm-hmm. petition, right? And so, so um, the notion that that we should not stand—I mean, love to stand and pray in synagogues. Well, I mean, we all love to. I hope we love to stand and pray. I think, I think you know, the every variation of Christianity loves to stand and pray. So it's not necessarily the standing and praying; it's the that they may be seen. It's that they may be seen by men. Right. And and how does anyone? And remember, this is not addressed to a community. This is addressed to his disciples. Mm-hmm. So he's telling his disciples um, uh, how their how their attitude should be, not necessarily what they should or should not do. The idea that they should pray in private. Don't be. Don't pray in public in order to be seen. If you have these 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 this type of prayer, then your your prayer should be private as well. Right, and I think that definitely fits in with the idea of, again, the Hippodidut style of Judaism where they talk about having that conversation with God, getting it out, meditation, other types of elements of Jewish prayer are private, yeah. and that is kind of the style. Ironically enough, right after he says not to have meaningless repetition, Yeshua then outlines the most famous liturgical prayer in Christian's history, which is the Lord's Prayer. He then says, so then pray in this way. Which really sounds liturgical if you think about it. it but, is, but, but I'm it, not sure that it was intended to be liturgical. He was more formulaic. The point though is that it is liturgical as well. <laughs> there, is a, there is an irony there, in my opinion. Right. Um, but I think that, of course, if you look at the, the, the version that he has, this prayer structure, it's very similar, as, as you've pointed out in your class, Dad, um, uh, the Matthews class in Brands Online. It's very similar to the, the outline, the Amidah. You get, you get praise for God, you get requests for forgiveness, you request for your daily uh, needs, for, uh, also also ask for protection from sin and those types of things. So it's very much similar to what you get. But the balance is not personal requests. And I think, the, I think chapter five and, or chapter, chapter six verses five and six are more towards the personal request Whereas chapter nine, or chapter six, nine through uh, thirteen, which is what we would call the Lord's Prayer, is is not it's not personal. I mean, as a mention of 
forgive us us our sins. Um, mm. So that might be somewhat personal, but in Miami Dial we see that that is both corporate and personal. But more importantly, this is a this is a prayer that's that's uh, prayed for. Um, uh, it, it, well, I mean, it's worship. I mean, look at the vast majority of this is worship, not. And I have prayer requests, right. and and as we all have experienced, um, you know, prayer requests essentially are simply an opportunity for, for oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes for gossip or for, um, or for your needs to be known to the community as opposed to being known to God. <laughs> right, which is really, from what I understand, per- personal requests, unless it's really serious. Generally speaking, in Judaism, tends to be more private in but your then, private prayer. But that, and that's my point. That's a, Maybe that's God, what they have a carve-out section for you to pray quietly to yourself to yeah. God when you have a. Request. And that's what I, that's my point is verses five through six. I think that's that's the focus is this is the this is the the private the, prayer. Well, you know, and it may not all be dirty laundry, but it could be right. right? You know, don't be airing it all. You know, we don't need to know everything that's going on in your job. Tell me about that. That's for sure. But let's not make that part of the prayer time. Right. Makes sense. I think the irony here for those who spend any time in the visible representation of the church today, Matthew 6, 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. <laughs> right, not the Jews. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just... Say, yeah. it, By the way, those Pharisees keep on repeating that same amen. stuff. Right. It's, <laughs> just, right it's just so opposite what, what the world is doing these days. You know, dinging the Jews for their... For liturgical prayer, and yet the the it's this empty phrases thing is what gets me. Um, but I tell you what, I mean, like you said, if you're praying the Amidah, if you're praying from the sitter, you're praying as Rick has said, the, you know, the best hits from the Torah. I mean, this is this is the best stuff. The Psalms, yeah. Right. So the empty phrases are what I remember from our days, you know, in the church, you know. Um, our God who lives in the outermost regions of the nether worlds of the universe may you well, be well seen by all those that you've created over the millennium. I, I think also so very good thought however there's words in the Torah and the prophets right. that say the same well, right. I think really one thing that comes to my mind and this is again not to critique people who do this because I understand sometimes it's just a reference talking and there's a way to stay focused it's like saying um but it does remind me of like the Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help so and so. And Heavenly Father, we want you to do this too. And Heavenly Father, we just really thank you, Heavenly Father, for the fact that you, Heavenly Father, do this as well. And it's like that becomes meaningless. It becomes. And Heavenly Father, you know you're the Heavenly Father. Right, because it, it's a replacement for um. And it's unfortunate Father because Father I God. don't think Father that God. that's really the best way to use that title of God over and over and over again without really seemingly to have any reason for saying it. Right. So that, I think, is almost more like, I mentioned the Hail Mary thing. I don't know if that's what she was getting at, but I think it's more along those lines. Because I'm sure, I mean, you talk about um, how about the Gentiles. Who are we talking about? We're not talking about Christianity. We're not talking about Judaism. Islam's 500 years from now. Pagans. We're talking about these crazy idolaters out there, yeah. you know, cutting themselves and trying to scream out something's name, hoping something happens. You know, yeah, I, yeah we probably shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Um, the next, at the end of that one, Yeshua then dovetails right off of the forgive us our debts into if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you, which is also, again, straight from the Talmud. Um, 
I'm pulling from... Well, he's, uh, Talmud comes straight from this. Right, yeah. sorry. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. Exactly. Um, same, same heart. Yeah. Oh, your dad looks just like you. <laughs> I think it's the other the way, way around. Yes, the heart, the heart is the same. Um, in Jewish Virtual Library, they have a, a copy of the Talmud section here, and it was Shabbat 151b. Uh, basically talks about the idea that if you act mercifully to other people, heaven will act mercifully to you. It is this, because throughout, throughout Jewish teaching, there is the, and I believe biblical teaching, there is the idea of measure for measure. God does reward you for what you do. And if you treat your brother badly, God will re respond in kind, and vice versa. And then in the Psalms, it talks about the idea, whoever, uh, with the crooked, he will show himself crooked, is one, one translation, or, or he will show himself, you know, crafty. You know, the point being is that if you treat other people badly, then you are heaping up punishment upon yourself. But if you forgive, then I think you had quoted, or someone had quoted a passage last week talking about, like, basically forgiveness of other people is, is enormous. Like, Major. God for, it will, it will um, give you a whole lot of grace, basically, for the man who is a forgiver, for the one who is willing to ignore insults to himself. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, Judaism, the, um, Judaism has this notion that God will forgive you for transgressions against him, but he won't forgive you for transgressions you do against your brother. Mm. Which kind of gets back to this whole notion of, you know, we need to forgive others, we need to ask forgiveness, but we need to forgive others, because if we don't forgive them, you know, if we don't have that reconciliation, right, right it's on brother, you. then it's going to strain this relationship. Right, exactly. And I think that's definitely a principle. That's what Yeshua, I think, is getting at here. He says, if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Um, yeah, to say, I'm not saying that Yeshua is pulling from the Talmud, but obviously that they're, they're hitting on the same, the same teachings from the Torah. But, by the way, um, just that was Shabbat 151b. Just as a side note, um, I would be in favor of adding this prayer to the end of the Amidah. I'm Actually, you know I what? Do, I do every day. I, 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 I do the Amidah. I do it every day. I do it personally. I do it personally. I do it personally as well, but I think it would be good to do That'd be cool. Do it every I do it we should do that. Well, I think, because the one thing I like about this... I do it before I leave before I leave the uh, throne room. Exactly. I mean, it's, that's exactly it's right. The, it's that's the, the last thing step I do, before I leave the throne room, and then I bow and back out. Yeah, right? I do the same. So it's, a, um, it's, it's, yeah, and it's a good way to recognize our master, even if maybe, regardless of whether or not he intended it to be used as a liturgical prayer or not, which I think he did, but even if not, um, it's still a good nod to say that we learn something from him. Yeah. And, it's, and that, those opportunities kind of come, don't come as often as they, we might think that they would, so I think it's right. good to take those traditions when we can. Um, the next thing that he hits on in this theme, because of the theme of the first half of chapter six is basically don't do it for show. I mean, everything pretty much is tying in on do this for the glory of men, you don't get to reward yourself. That same deal throughout the, the, the first half of the chapter six. And so he, he, he moves on from prayer into the next thing that most religious people do, which is fasting, um, prayer and fasting. Uh, so he, he, interesting, this one really bothered me for a while, actually. Um, not like I had a problem with it, but more just like kind of confused. Because he says, Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. That's chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 6, verse 17 of Matthew, Yeshua says, But you, wash your face when you fast, 
Anoint your head and wash your face, since your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, when I read this passage before, I was like, well, I mean, that just runs headbutt with Jewish tradition. Yom Kippur, we're not, we're not bathing, we're not anointing. I mean, Shtish same deal. You know, we're trying to basically create this. We don't want to show off. We're trying to, like, find all of the things that would make our us feel good about ourselves, basically, and, and kind of strip those away. It was like in, you know, taking out the jewelry is the, in the repentance that the people of Israel did in the book of Exodus. But then, as I kept studying, what I found out is actually... Those are the only fasts you do that on. That's not normal. And not only that, but the entire country right. is That's doing not a personal that fast. No way to, yeah, there's no way to hide that. You're on. never <laughs> going to be going out to the market. Right. right. So on Yom Kippur... <laughs> well, it's not intended. I mean, it, it is a holy convocation. I mean, it's right. intended to be so communal when, fast. And we are all fasting. Right. 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 So with Yom Kippur, it's like, you're, it's not showing off because... You better be fast. I'm right. assuming you What's are. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so if you are washing your face, I'm just thinking, you just didn't get the memo, but obviously you're fasting. Um, in the, uh, I can tell actually, you brushed your teeth. Uh, yeah, great. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting. In, uh, I bowl. found on um, one good. teaching I found from yeshiva.co, which is like a, some sort of Jewish commentary group, they had an um, interesting note that said that the minor fasts, like the ones that we just we got done yeah, with one and we got up. another one coming up yeah. um, for uh, Gedaliah, that you actually don't need to worry about the anointing bathing thing. Take your bath, take your shower, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's not part of that fast. Right. So um, I couldn't find the same comment on the personal fast, but I'm assuming it's probably the same deal because they're lower yes, level. So the idea then, again, Yeshua is not contradicting Judaism at all. In fact, as it I turns out, of course, not could he. But then as it turns out, as I started doing some more study, I was amazed to find that, um, and I pulled this one for, again from the Jewish Encyclopedia, uh, dot com. They had a note from Shulchan Aruch, and I couldn't find this. This is apparently in like the Hebrew only version of the Shulchan Aruch, like the real full master deal, not the little puny kitzer that we have in English. Um, in yeah, kitzer's not puny, but it's small. Yeah, the, the best hits. Um, the, this one is in ch- section five sixty five six, so down there a little ways, and it actually talks about specifically says it's a mitzvah, it's a requirement. You cannot boast about fasting. If you're showing off, going, yeah, I'm having a fast today, personal fast, we're talking, personal fast, big problem. You blew it. You blew it. So it's like, I think that's incredible. In fact, and um, I pulled up from a, another reference, um, dafyomi.co.al had a reference from another teaching. I'm not familiar with this one. Megan Avraham? Yeah. Megan Avraham. Okay. Sure. Uh, this was from six of that, and it said that they actually, there was almost like this idea that it would, it's almost borderline okay to lie about fasting. Like, Try to find a way not to tell somebody you're fasting. Like, it's supposed to be very private. And um, as we were saying earlier, there may be opportunities where it's okay to say that you are more as to be an example or simply to be honest. But basically, not only are you not supposed to show off. Keep it under the rug. But you shouldn't be like, you know, slipping little hints, you know. Oh, oh, oh yes, I am fasting today. The, the most vivid example of that um, that I have seen, well not seen personally, but that I've read about, was the Babasali, who would fast six days a yeah, week. Yeah, he was, he was the outcome. And he would only eat on Shabbat. But he, the, the, the crazy thing about it is, nobody knew that, including his, Even wife, his wife, for like four years. <laughs> That's scary. Because she would take food into his study, and she'd go back an hour later, pick up the empty dishes, and she just assumed he was eating. But he was giving it away to people who were coming in for blessings or counsel <laughs> or prayer or you know, whatever. 
and he 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 did that for four years. Of, um, they get they they guess best they could figure out. He he had been doing that for four years before his wife finally figured it out. Yeah. Dad, you have a comment? Yeah, uh, just just a just a it, it brought to mind when you talk about prescribed fast. It brought brought to mind the Didache. And in uh, the Didache, uh, which would be probably, obviously pre, uh, pre church fathers, pre Talmud, pre, pre, certainly, pre, mostly pre first century. Yeah, followers. Uh, of it says your fast and prayers. In eight one, it says your fast should not be with the hypocrites, for they fast Monday and Thursdays. You should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. It, and I'm just curious opinion about the because the Pharisees. The Pharisees did fast on Mondays and Thursdays, so you know that to me that may be more what he's talking about here is like these these prescribed fasts you where know everybody knows fast. you know if you're a, if you're the holy guy you're yeah. fasting today right because well, it's Monday. Well, and yeah. then there were, I mean if you if you looked in your first off if you look in your in your Siddur, there is a section specifically for a personal fast you declare it for whatever reason to keep. I, yeah, but these aren't personal fasts, this is but a, that was a group thing. They also interesting Mondays and Thursdays get mentioned because I think that was the the, the dates if I remember correctly from the study I did that they were for the prayer for rain. Like if it wasn't raining, you would fast on Mondays and Thursdays like until it rained basically, and and you could escalate the fasts you know or or how often they happened or whatever. If it, if it took longer before rain came, right. so the point being that like um, those are, I mean, that's a traditional date. Well, but it's interesting here because the 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 Didache says instead make your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. To so almost as if who well, would expect look, you to be fasting on Wednesday and Friday? Right, exactly. So I mean, it's hidden. But if you're if you're a follower of Messiah, you were fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. But but is that really more a function of? Already, the separation is starting to take and, place. Well, I think it was the didache kind of indicates that, right. and it makes it does also make the point. It says, "Don't pray like the hypocrites, but instead pray this way." And it, and it quotes Matthew, Matthew six, uh, seven and eight, where you know, what, or Matthew five rather that what we would call the Lord's prayer. It quotes it. It says, and then ends up by saying, "Pray, pray this three times every day." So, to me, it's almost more the differentiation. Yeah, I don't hold to the Thursday and. Monday and Thursday, and I don't hold to the Wednesday or Friday <laughs> right. either, uh, because I think both would negate the very thing that you should bring up here is that your your personal fast should be right. even your, even your community fast. You need to be careful that it's not just for show. Right, right. and I think the Catholics did the same thing. Right. At least when I was a kid, before you were born, oh, Friday you couldn't eat Friday, you couldn't eat meat, you right. had to have right. fish. Right, and the thing is, again, this is again it, focusing it on the personal it. side of this because obviously, as we've said, with certain group fasts, like community fasts, like Yom Kippur, which is biblical mandate, uh, it's a uh, it's a prescribed fast based off of the Torah text, and then you also have like Tishba Av, which is the rabbinic fast, but it's based again off of Zacharias. We have a biblical reason for it, and it's for everybody. Then those ones. Yeah, yeah, you're fasting. Yom, and we Tammuz, you Yom Tammuz is a is a fast for everybody. Right, but then but I think, lie is a fast for everybody. Right, but then of course if you decide that hey you know um, on Yom Kippur Katan I'm going to fast this month because it's a lul. Well, maybe you don't want to show that one off. They could fast that morning. Whatever you know. The idea being that like you're again, what's your motivation? What's your reasons for doing yeah. it? Are you just showing off, or are you doing it because it's something? That would go back. That would go back to what we were talking about in the overlap between the Sadducees or the scribes and the Pharisees. That same thing. It's it's not 
it's not what they were doing per se, but or How what they were doing. teaching, well, excuse me, what they were saying to do. It was the fact that it was being done for show. Right, right. and I think that's the critique. And a couple of scripture references on fasting. Um, Leviticus 23, verse 27 and 29. Um, someone wants to pull that one up. Leviticus, how many did what? What's the answer? Uh, 23, 27, and 29. Two verses there. And then Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 10. Right. Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. And you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. Now another translation for that sometimes instead of afflicted is the word humbled. Yeah. Which I think it would be incredibly ironic if you're using your fast to show off. Right. Because it is partly about humbling yourself. It is to oppress or humiliate. 58 uh, 58 verses 3 through 10 it says why have we fa- them speaking why have we fasted and you do not see why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice behold on the on the day of your fast you find your desire and drive hard all your workers behold you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist you do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high isn't it fast like this which I chose a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for barring, bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is it not the fast which I chose to, is this not the fast that I chose, I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke and, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh and then your light will then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard then you will call and the Lord will answer you will cry and he will say here I am if you remove from the yoke from your midst the pointing of the finger the speaking of wickedness and if you give yourself to the hungry and to sad and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will be like midday. Mm. So the reference, again, this is talking about God in Isaiah 58 is doing what Yeshua is doing here. He's saying that fasting is not enough. If your fasting is done with improper motives, if your fasting is done good. to oppress the people around you, if your fasting is done, and while you're fasting, you're mistreating your neighbor, or you're, 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 you're using an excuse to avoid having to see them or talk to them or whatever, then this is not the relationship with you're supposed to have because the fast is supposed to be a, re- a, a means of, of repentance, it's supposed to be a means of, of getting rid of your fleshly desires, not having, a, a, having excuse to do them. You know, if you've ever fasted all day, you get grumpy at the end of the day. But that's not And you're inviting the poor into your house to eat. It's like, right. wait a minute, if you're inviting them in their, into your house to eat, they don't know you're fasting because there's food. Right. And they're apparently not fasting, so it's not a group fast. That's right. So that's, the, again, the idea is that I think that um, Yeshua, in, in playing off of his father's comments in Isaiah 58, is, uh, is kind of kidding that next level. So like here in Isaiah 58, you get the idea of a lot of it is focused on um, what to do when you're fasting, how to treat your neighbors while fasting. And I, Matthew chapter 6 is going into what's your attitude supposed to be? How, why are you doing it? Um, and then, let's see. So it's about... And it's hard. To, it's hard to be depressed on Yom Kippur. I mean, it is. I mean, it's it's fasting. It's hard on your body. There's no question that it's difficult. But at the same time, there's there's a level of joy in Yom Kippur. Mm, the notion that our sins are forgiven, you know, that Hallelujah. we have repented, uh, is 
is almost, I mean, we're not supposed to go around you know, with a big smile on our face, you know, and happy, happy, but at the same time, inside, it's a great day. <laughs> it, is one, it is one of those, it is mystical in that regard, because on the one hand, when you reflect on all the idiotic, stupid, wrong, simple stuff you've done, right, I mean, there is a depression of, of sorts Absolute. that can come and probably should come because you know, when you when you kind of own up to um, mm-hmm. just how bad you've desecrated the name of Hashem, yeah. you know it should have an impact in that regard. But but the flip side of it is, you know, we also have this great hope. Absolutely. You know, and so it is. It is a strange. It's. Kind I mean, of it's, it's a good. Day. It's the good kind of worship experience because the worship experience we read in Isaiah, uh, chapter six is, "Woe is me for a man of unclean lips." And yet, at the same time, and and the glory of the his Lord train filled the temple. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he provides a coal. That's right. Yeah. There we go. Just uh, Rabbi Shmuel Ben Gamliel actually says, "Yom Kippur and Tubab, happiest days of the Jewish True. people." Yeah. But, you know, on the outside, not just on the outside, the reflection as well. It is a very, I mean, it's difficult. Yom Kippur is a difficult day, but it's also so glorious. Absolutely. I think it's funny, um, when you think about a, a great lesson in, in teaching, Yeshua masters the art of transitions. And I feel like right in the middle of chapter 6, I'm going to transition here, not as seamlessly as he The did. master masters um, transition. He masters the transition, because we've been talking this whole first half of chapter 6, is about where your reward is coming from. It's coming from heaven because you're not doing it for that earthly reward. Well, then it immediately says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, again, focusing in on that earthly reward, but rather in heaven, where your treasure is that your heart will be also. He then allows that to be his pivot point to focus on another element that actually does get mentioned in the Perkei vote. They talk a lot about, uh, in addition to seeking glory, also greed. So his next focus is on money. And, um, and the rest of chapter 6, the whole rest of the chapter is all about what you do with money. Verse 22 is, and 23 are quite possibly some of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. And I think when you find out what they really are talking about, it's so cool. Um, and I know I've talked about this as a good example before, so I'm sure you're already familiar with it. The eye is the window to the soul. Right. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your no, eyes, no, the eyes of the window to the soul. So, right. <laughs> Look so if your eye eyes, is you clear, <laughs> your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's Matthew 6, and verses 22 and 23. How can light be dark? Light. How can light be dark? So what are we talking about here? Yeah. A lot, your, if your eye is clear, if your eye is bad, it's like... So if you need glasses, you're in big trouble, dude. Or is it more like, if you look at inappropriate things? Well, that's also true. But in this case, we're talking about a different subject. Let's look at the context. Verse 20 and 21 are about treasure in heaven and treasure on earth. Verse 24 through basically the rest of the chapter is all about money. It's all about whether or not you have money for this or money for that. Do you going to have the things that you need? Are you going to worry about the things that you need? So why in the middle of this would he just randomly drop this little passage about eyesight? He's not talking about that. And the only way you know that is if you actually read other parts of Scripture. Yes, sir. The, uh, the ancient world's view of light is, is different from our view of light. When I say different, it's not really, but at least at the surface level. Science says that light exists and our eye sees light. 
and we say that on our morning prayers but we actually turn it around we say we see life we uh, basically he lets us see light right. okay uh, and by his light we see light that's pretty interesting light just does light doesn't just exist the ancient world treated the eye as the as the um, as the projector of light not the receiver of light and so it's interesting that and, and I and actually I do believe there's some when you look at quantum physics, there's actually some basis for this. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you, look, the, you the taste eye, it. I know. Sorry. So the eye actually projects light, and I think personally, I think that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the projection of light. So if your eye is bad, the reason why you only you see light's darkness is like it's because what's inside is bad. Right. So if it's inside is bad, then what you're seeing is going to be bad too. In other words, it's like you're you're bringing your own darkness out. I mean, I mean the Greeks, the Greeks, the philosophers had diagrams they drew of how the light projects, how the eye projects light right. into the world, and basically everything's dark except the eye projects light. But what specifically has this effect on light and darkness? And I think that's what's cool is it's not just your, it's not your physical eye that she was talking about. He uses that as an illustration, right? But the point he's getting at is the evil eye. The evil eye is a very traditional idiom for in greed. Judaism. What? For greed, right? For greed. For greed, avarice, frugal, uh, excessive frugality, miserliness. And in fact, it's not just in Jewish teachings. Um, it's in the it's in the Tanakh. If you go to Proverbs 28.22 and 28.27, so a couple of verses right close to each other, and if somebody else can look up Deuteronomy 15.9. I got Deuteronomy. So it's Proverbs 28, 22, and 27. I got 22. Go ahead. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Now, if you look at that word stingy, you have this cool, you can see what it says, right? That word is ra. Ra is evil. And is there another, there should be another word in there too. It should be an evil eye is actually the Hebrew. Yes. I yeah, it's an evil eye. Literally, an I evil eye. It's exactly what Yeshua says. If your eye is bad, if your eye is raw, evil, then you've got a problem. So what, we talk, what, is, what is it translated in your Bible? It's translated stingy. stingy. And what do you got? He who gives to the poor will never want. He who shuts his eyes will have many curses. And now, it's the same word, I Yeah, same thing. Shut, shutting his eye. And what does this all really point back to? It goes back to the Torah, Deuteronomy 15, which says... 15 what? 9. 15.9 says, uh, beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh, is that what you want? I think the seventh, so, yeah. you, you, the seventh year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your bro mm -hmm. poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall give, you shall generously give. That was so, good. Your so eye is, your eye is akin to uh, not being charitable. Not being charitable. Because mm -hmm. really, if you think about it, it actually fits in really well. If you have, if, if, in English, we have this uh, kind of funny phrase um, you may have heard before. I've heard about, uh, I've heard uh, your family likes to use it every now and again. The hairy eyeball. You know, you get that, you get that look. Did you, did you, what were you going to say? No, no, after you go. Okay. You get that look from somebody and it's like, and, and actually the sad thing is, have you ever been tempted to do that when you see a guy in the street asking for money? You know, hey, can I, you, got, you got a cell phone in their hand? Can I have five bucks? You got some money? I'm gonna go buy some food. I promise. But you know, you give them that look. Or, or as, as you see here too, other things people do—they shut their eyes. They look away. They look up. They look down. They close their eyes. They put a book in front of their face because it's about the eye. In other words, if you give that eye contact to somebody, it, there's a connection there. It's uncomfortable because they're asking for something. 
and you don't want to give it to them. So the idea is it's actually, it's actually a physiological response that then becomes an idiom. And the idiom is an evil eye is someone who's not generous. They're stingy. And, it, and the eye is what projects that evil out. And it projects that evil. So that internal greed on the inside, where your treasure is, your heart will be, is now being thrust out. So that's what we were talking about earlier. We were talking about when we were saying, um, you know, the if you if you if, if you look at righteousness as zadaka, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness does not exceed these groups, it's like if you, I mean think about it. Total losers are generous. Some of the most wicked men on the planet give out huge piles of money to their favorite charities, to poor people, to this group or that group. If you can't even do that. And Donald Trump gives one. I'm I mean, just going to say you're, 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 I, 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 I knew you were going to say it. I just had to get it out first. You're, if you can't even be generous, then your righteousness is pathetic. It's just so low because even the wicked are generous. It's a, it's a strictly Jewish concept. Do you remember the, the movie uh, A Stranger Among Us? Yeah, mm -hmm. you got the, the chick, uh, New York City, uh, Melanie Griffith, yeah, and she's Griffith. going into the Diamond District, and she meets the Rebbe, and he gets up real close, and looks in her eye, <laughs> and she's all freaked out. He says, "I've seen your soul." <laughs> See, <laughs> look into your there eyes. There it is, right? It's the, it's, yeah, because he can tell from her eye. Unbelievable. Brock, what's your comment? Um, interestingly enough, one of the translations... You're not going to talk about Donald Trump, are you? Well, I wasn't going to, but then he's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the translations I have, which is the complete Jewish Bible translation, actually in brackets for that verse, it, does. Matthew, yeah. it actually says, the eyes of the lamp of the soul, so if you have good eye brackets, that is, if you are generous, your yes. whole body will be and full that's well that's Good job. But if you have evil eye brackets, that is, if you are stingy. Definitely one of my Very favorite good. translations. Good translation. That's exactly what he's getting at. Because immediately thereafter... In verse 24, Yeshua says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and wealth is one translation. Mammon is the other traditional translation. Now, this is where we start getting into another cool little, like, idiom. Because if you've ever read this passage, you're probably scratching your head going, What is mammon? Like, what is even... In fact, if you do a quick Bible search on that one, good luck! It doesn't really show up anywhere. What's he talking about? As it turns out, the Midrash Rabbah knows exactly what he's talking about. In Midrash, the Midrash Aramaic. Yeah. In Midrash Rabbah, this is for Matot, this is for numbers, let me give you the context. Matot, Parshat Matot, includes the portion where the half-tribe of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben come to Moses, well actually, I think it's mostly Reuben and Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh get thrown in. They come to Moses and say, we've got lots of cattle. And we think it's really green over here on the other side of the Jordan. We'll just stay here, and we'll build uh, sheep folds and stuff for our cattle, and also cities for our children, and then we'll go help you fight, and we'll come back. And Moses goes, first off, you should build those cities for your children first, and then take care of your cattle. And okay, if you promise to actually help your brethren fight, we'll let you do that. But the, the, the Midrash, they're not too keen on this one. They're like, these guys, come on, they had a chance to go into the land of Israel, and they chose to be on the other side of the Jordan just because they had lots of wealth. They had lots of cattle, and they wanted to, like, you know, uh, expand their, their physical resources. And so they critique them for that. And interestingly enough, they specifically bring up mammon. They go through a list, and this, you know, the Midrash sometimes will do this, where they'll just find a, a kind of a rabbit trail, and they will chase it as far as it'll go, and they'll get a whole bunch of things that are related. So in this particular one, what they're doing is they're taking a whole bunch of different references of money, different terms for money, 
and they're doing a funny little, uh, a cool little midrash off the word for that for money, and showing how it, the word itself says, "What are you doing seeking this for?" So on Mammon, this is what they have to say. Um, money is called Mammon as much as to say Ma Ata Mone, which is Hebrew or uh, translated for "What are you counting?" It is nothing. In other words, what they're saying is, it's like, what are you doing? Is basically what they're translating it to. So when Yeshua says, when when Yeshua says this, you cannot serve God and mammon, he's basically, to put it into a modern terminology, it'd almost be like saying, you cannot serve God and dead presidents. And it's almost like he's putting an intentional put down Mm. on the money by using this this terminology that, at least by the time the Midrash came around... The extremes, God who is above everything and just filth. And just money. Like, like it's... In fact, the word he uses is intentionally, like, got this funny little, like, you know, um, it's almost like a, a an acronym for, what are you doing? Yeah. Which is really cool. So basically... Counting is important. Right. So he's trying to argue the fact that if your life is focused on money, and that means, and again, we're going back to the stinginess, right? So I'm not going to give that guy money because I want to keep it for myself. Well, first off, that doesn't trust God, because I believe, we should believe that money all comes from God. Secondly, it also is putting a mitzvah of giving charity behind my greed. And throughout the Perkei Avot, I mean, there, there are piles of references here. I've got one, this is an example. Well, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Rabbi Yehoshua says, an evil eye, we know what that is now, the evil inclination and hatred of, an, of other people remove a person from the world. Now that's a list. <clears throat> you do not want to have a character trait listed with the evil inclination and hating other people. But stinginess, greed, is in that group. It's a really big deal. Um, and so Yeshua is right to really focus on it. He doubles down. Like you think about it, we get like what, one little block that talks about adultery? In the last chapter, chapter five, he spends like like seven, eight verses yeah. on the issue of greed here. So he's really trying to emphasize this is very dangerous. It's a very bad thing. In Perkei Avot chapter five, there's one more that I just really I, I gotta go with here on this one, on this evil eye thing. Oh, you're looking so it up cool. just real quick. This reminds me. Uh, forget the reference, but it really fits. Is uh, a Christmas Carol by Dickens. Mm. And and we have the man who always concerned with his counting his money. That's right. And in this, in the process, has forgotten that he had opportunity throughout his life to, to help Mitchell, others. Yeah. And we see this, you know, that we see that it's juxtaposed against the poor, you know, you know, tiny, tiny Tim, tiny, tiny, tiny Tim, Tim. Yeah, yeah. tiny Tim, and and so you get the picture of Scrooge counting his money in his in his you know his back room, and tiny Tim not getting a meal. Right. So mm-hmm. and and it's crash, course, it doesn't get and the paid. wonderful and the wonderful turn to the story as Dickens always does he shows how how once it was revealed to him that he was laying up nothing yeah, right he fixed it you know and and he ends up in the grave with nothing he has an opportunity then to fix it and the way that he fixes it is he doesn't go through all the other things in in the story and fix it he goes to that one and fixes it right interesting in the Perkei Avot chapter five. We get that um, we talk about who is who is really the type of people who should be generous, and it says whoever. This is uh, chapter five, verse twenty-two. Perkei Avot five twenty-two. Yeah. Whoever has the following three traits is among the disciples of our forefather Abraham. And whoever has three different traits is among the disciples of the wicked Balaam. Mm. Those who have a good eye, a humble spirit, and a meek soul 
or among the disciples of our forefather Abraham. Those who have an evil eye, an arrogant spirit, and a greedy soul are among the disciples of the wicked Balaam. And then he go down this a little bit. It says, The disciples of our forefather Abraham enjoy in this world and inherit the world to come. Mm. And then again, flipping down again, the disciples of the wicked Balaam inherit Gehenna and descend to the well of destruction. And we read that at the end of every class. Yeah, at the end of that verse says, uh, you, you, O God, shall lower them into the well of destruction, men of bloodshed and deceit shall yeah. not live out half their days. Which comes from the Psalms as well. Right. So in this particular reference, Yeshua again is playing off of this idea where Judaism understands this very clearly. It is, generosity is huge. In fact, no surprise that Judaism got this message. It's no surprise that Yeshua points it out because throughout the entire Nevi'im, all the prophets basically are pounding and pounding and pounding and they're almost all of them, they're, one of their primary complaints is you don't take care of the poor. Which is amazing because I think, unfortunately, that's something that is probably very true of, of a lot of religious people today. How much do we take care of the poor? How generous are we? And I think that's one thing that Judaism did get right. That Judaism today absolutely. is by far like one of the most philanthropic or, uh, religious groups on the planet. Unbelievably so. Even, 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 even among the non-religious in, in, right. in the that's state right. of Israel. Well, that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. Like the, if, the, if, the, if the light that's in you is darkness, if you can't even compare to the non-religious guys, then, I mean, what are we doing here? So moving ahead here, um, one of the things that Yeshua then gets into at the very end of this uh, portion, he tells them not to be worried and concerned about their life, and he, and he contrasts the situation of natural creatures and how God provides for them versus uh, yourself. So why are you worried about food? Birds don't worry about food. God takes care of them. Why do you worry about clothing? The flowers don't worry about clothing. God dresses them just fine. And um, interestingly enough, in, 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 in both those references, you get like a little bit of a biblical illusion. In the, in the bird's reference, I think we should be thinking about Elijah, who the ravens bring him food during the famine. So it's kind of funny that God, Yeshua specifically chooses to pick out birds here as the animal of choice. Then on the flip side, with the grass, um, in, Psalm, in the Psalms and also in the, in, the, in the prophets, man is oftentimes compared to grass. In fact, the reference that he uses here, he says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? It's almost like a little bit of like a subtle dig. It's kind of like, come on, you think you're so much better than grass? I mean, then we have like, we have well, a lot of verses. Grass is a good thing because it gets clothed. Yeah. Right, it gets clothed. The saying is that in God's eyes, you're grass, but God takes care of grass. It's almost like he's doing like this logical, you know, if, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C kind of thing. It's like, God takes care of the grass, and you are compared to grass in Psalms and in Isaiah. God's going to well, take care of you. But but isn't he saying you're better than grass? Because he's right. saying, will he not much more clothe you? Absolutely. Right, that's true. Good point. So, so he's saying, look, God takes care of the grass, but you're made in his image, so how much more will he take care of you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even then more he turns, then, excuse me. No, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You had your hand up. You're president. Uh, well, I, I was going to say two things. One, I just find it interesting the way Yeshua phrases this whole thing because he's speaking from a position of one who knows. Like, birds don't. He states it as it's, as it's fact. Birds don't worry about food. <laughs> <laughs> How would anybody, no human on the planet knows what birds are thinking? <laughs> that's right. Yeshua. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good fun. point. And, that's and, true. and then, yeah. <laughs> maybe, but that was fiction. The other thing is... Um, well, how do, you, how do you know that? You say that like it's a fact. <laughs> well, Nobody asks him. They go, okay, well, we buy that. 
Well, it does say, you know, you don't need to worry about that. You know, maybe what is not said, and, not, and um, I don't think Yeshua was intending this to be a license for not, like, going out and gathering your food. Of course not. Because the birds, you know, they may not worry about it, but they go out and look for their food. Work, right. No, grass absolutely. stretches out to the sky it, and gets yeah, take, water yeah. and, and sun. So I think, I've, I've heard people use these verses oh, yeah. in the past as license to not. Of course, they're ignoring Solomon says, look to the ant, you sluggard. Right, right. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> man also, doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Well, and in Judaism also gets this idea very clearly because... I mean, working is, is talking about birthday vote, talk about working. Working is a good thing. But then they, they, they supplement that by saying she believed that everything you have comes from God. You don't think you have anything. So you don't worry about anything because you know God's going to take care of you. But you still work, and you don't work for the thing. You work because that's what you're supposed to do. God puts you on this planet to work. I think it's interesting the way he finishes that. He turns right around and says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, which if you take that back to... The Pharisees, then you're saying, wait, wait, I'm the poor one. And if I seek his kingdom and his righteousness, I'm the one with my hand out. Right. Will, will you mm-hmm. give me the Stop. charity? And the answer is, of course. Things right. will be added to you. Yeah. Good point. I like that. It's very good. And um, interestingly Otherwise, enough, what's his righteousness? Right. That's a good point. Uh, that's, that's, that's a good point. In addition, and also we have this um, the reference here on, uh, I, I thought this was really cool. Yeshua lists out three three things. He says uh, in verse, what is that verse? Hang on. He's got uh, chapter 6. He, he pulls out, he says, verse 31, Do not worry then saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? Those three things are specifically what he lists out, which is interesting because they are necessities. Notice he does not list shelter, but those three things appear somewhere else. They show up in Deuteronomy. Yeah, that's right. Deuteronomy chapter 29. God says to the people of Israel, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. This is uh, Moses speaking on um, behalf of God, I guess. Or sort of, he's, actually, Moses speaking. Um, he says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. So what happens? The people of Israel, in fact, we get another reference earlier in Deuteronomy, where he says he humbled them, through not giving them food, so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we get the same language going on here that Yeshua is playing off of. Don't worry about clothing, food, and drink. God already took care of the people, your people, your ancestors, in the wilderness, with those three things specifically. And what were they supposed to teach you? Supposed to teach you that I am the Lord your God. Supposed to teach you that the words of God matter more than the food you put in your body. So again, what's the flip of this? You're supposed to be thinking about the kingdom of God. You're supposed to be focusing on God, focusing on, focusing on his words. Um, and the Perkei vote really hammers this one home as well. Uh, when they, they point chapter. out... I'm sorry? Chapter. Chapter 5. And this is verse uh, 26. Um, one of yeah. my dad's ah, favorite. Ben Bagbag. Ben Bagbag. <laughs> ben Bagbag. Says, delve in it, the Torah, and continue to delve in it, the Torah, for everything is in it. Look deeply into it. Grow old and gray over it, and do not stir from it. For you can have no better portion than it. Then at uh, Perkei Avot, again, um, in 6, uh, section 9, this is 6, verse 9, at Perkei Avot. Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, oh, sorry, I can pass on here. Um, you get a lot of, this is a little story here, Yossi ben Kisma is saying, he gets, a, he gets an opportunity to get a, to move to a new city. Uh, they want a rabbi there. And they offer him piles and piles of money, whatever you want, you know, basically, because we just want you to come live with us. And that would mean he would have to leave his current town, which is a place of Torah. 
So his response is, even if you were to give me all the silver and gold, precious stones and pearls in the world, I would live dwell nowhere but in a place of Torah. And then he quotes a couple of verses. Um, excuse me. And specifically, he goes on a little drosh regarding uh, one of those verses, which says, uh, So it is written in the book of Psalms by David, king of Israel. I prefer the Torah of your mouth above thousands in gold and silver. Furthermore, when a man departs from this world, neither silver nor gold nor precious stones nor pearls escort him, but only Torah study and good deeds. As it is said, when you walk, it shall guide you. When you lie down, it shall guard you. And when you awake, it shall speak on your behalf. When you walk, it shall guide you in this world. When you lie down, it shall guard you in the grave. And when you awake, it shall speak on your behalf in the world to come. In other words, exactly like he, uh, what Yeshua is getting at here is don't seek this stuff. This stuff all goes away. Really put that energy, put that focus, put that passion into Hashem, into His righteousness, into His word, into the Torah, because that lasts forever. Amen. And exactly we're going back to with the generosity thing. So if you give that charity, oh, you know what? That's one of the ones you get a reward for in this world and in the world to come. That's right. But well, if you hold that charity... your father bread and he'll give you a stone. Right. And we're going to get that one next week. If you, hold, if you hold back that charity, well, now the only reward you got is the pathetic handful of dollar bills sticking in your hand. Yeah. And what are you, you going to do with that? Just count it? Right. You can't take it with you. That's right. That's right. So, uh, I just see you want to die later, I'll put a check in your casket. <laughs> That's a really good point. That's a really good point. So, um, yeah, so again, just to kind of summarize chapter six. Beginning first half is all about vain glory, really showing off. Second half is about money. The overall theme for chapter six, we've been trying to get themes for each one to help us remember. The theme is basically boils down to where's your reward? What are you do? What, where where are you seeking your reward from? The first half are you seeking it from men to make you to look good in their in their sight, and the second half are you seeking it from money? Are you just doing it for for the some sort of physical tangible benefit now? Mm-hmm. Really, both cases should be directed upwards, and that's Yeshua's whole point for chapter six. So it's like a little encased block of thought. Again, one of those rare times when the monks really nailed the chapter breaks. We're going to transition next week. Um, if you do some homework in advance, read chapter seven. Um, I don't know if we'll get through all of it or not, but uh, chapter 7 is going to be another really cool point uh, as we delve into kind of what Yeshua is getting at. Um, chapter 7, especially love the first half of chapter 7 because it's basically like a 15-verse exegesis breakdown of two tiny little verses in Leviticus, which is going to be really fun. Um, any other final comments before we wrap up? That was excellent. That's good. Yes. You know, it, 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 you, you can't help but... Uh, I mean, I mean, you did a great job, but just it's just remarkable to me that anybody can read this and separate it from Judaism. I mean, right? It is it is the very or understand it without without, without, without yeah. interpreting it through the Torah. And it's not. It's just right. it's a, it's a, it's a remarkable it's a remarkable. I mean, it's such a it's such a. I mean, it's 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 not just Jewish then; it's Jewish yeah, now. I just, I oh, just totally. I just don't think they have any idea. It's not that they deliberately go. Well, what does this have to do with Judaism? They never. They never but on the, flip, but on the flip side, on the flip side, Jewish people today, that they that they're not using these words as as that they're not at least holding these words up as as simply as valuable as per kavod because there's a whole lot of. I mean, it's not it's not tightly compact like per kavod. 
Okay, so it's very concise, and I have nice little snippy things to say from her KFO. This actually goes into depth on it. It's right. great. It is and this, and that, that, and that's uh, hopefully again the point of a lot of this lesson. Number one is so we can understand our master and what he teaches. But number two is to see where how he fits in, and not how he fits in so much as how that fits into him. And but not only that, but we get the opportunity then to go back to those that are in the visible expression of the church and share with them. To, and maybe you don't get it. And also, this I think, is Judaism. And also, I think to encourage each other to realize that Yeshua fits in. I think that's the problem. Is I think, as you were saying, there's a second side to this. It's not just that the church misses it when they try to teach that your evil eye has to do with you know not looking at something inappropriate on the internet. But what Judaism has missed it. But, but I Jesus, mean, not missed the not missed the the teaching, the teaching but missed his teaching. Missed missed him. The fact that he fits in because right. they instead because right. as you were saying, this is great reading. I mean, that's why, and I really hope that as we've studied these chapters in depth the last couple of weeks, that we can start to really pull those things out as we're studying our Torah portion, Amen. as you're studying the Tanakh. Because Yeshua's not, um, he's not reinventing the wheel, he's not creating something completely new, but he is giving us depths and insights that aren't really coming from somewhere else either. So, but he's, all of it's playing off of the Tanakh. So Yeshua is, is part and parcel with this, with this Jewish desire to digest, to discuss, to break down, to delve into the Torah. Mm -hmm. And I think, it, as we've been saying, it's a mistake to cut him out and say, well, you can't, you can't follow Yeshua right. and he, follow a, Judaism. He was a they're, transitional they're two, they're two different groups. Or, yeah, or, or Yeshua is getting out of one and into something else. No, Yeshua is steeped in it, and he's teaching in it. And, and, it's, and rather than contradicting the Torah, really, most of his stuff... Sometimes you almost have to read the Midrash and go, is there a footnote that says Matthew chapter 5 somewhere down yeah. here? Because, or, or the there, stuff from there the... should be. Or from, yeah, or from the Talmud. I mean, it's amazing how many references are almost, almost word for word to some of the things that he says. The difference is, and even if you know a lot of these guys that you're reading in the Midrash, the Midrash you don't, but uh, the Talmud, even if, you, even if you have a somewhat intimate reference, we, we, know, we know this person very well. Yes. And, right. and we know he's... He's absolutely trustworthy. And it predates the other guys, we can say, okay, well, that's good. That's very good. And I can see it relates to the Torah. And, and I'll take that nice little phrase and I'll remember that because that's that helps me understand the thing from the Torah. But there, here I have someone to follow. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, I mean, Yeshua, in my view, his he's like the, um, well, I mean, he's like the greatest Musar <laughs> that's ever lived, right? I mean, that's really his focus. It's yeah, the it's, ethical, yeah, it's ethical right. essence of the Torah. He's not so much a halakhic. I mean, he has a few things to say halakhically, but, but not for the most part, he says, whatever they say, whatever do, they say do that. Do, right. do, do, do what they say. But let's talk about the ethical essence of what True. we're doing. True. How do you really do it? You know, it's like it's not just what right. you do practically, but what's the heart that goes into it? Exactly. And that's 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 boy. If you could put the two together, <laughs> you have a perfect man. Right. Um, so let's wrap up here. That's good. I thank you, Adonai, our God, that you have not established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall. That you have established a portion with those who dwell in the study hall. Excuse me. <laughs> and you have not established a portion with idlers. <laughs> Ah, I get the, Thank you. you have yeah. For we arise early and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah and they arise early for idle words. We toil and they toil. We toil and receive reward and they toil and do not receive reward. We run and they run. We run to the life of the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. 
as it is written, And you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days, but as me, I will trust in you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Joshua.